to Foresight's Book Club podcast on Gaming the Future, Technologies for Intelligent Voluntary Cooperation, co-authored by Christine Peterson, Mark Miller and me, Alison Dutman. In this episode, we discuss Chapter 5, Improved Cooperation, New Info, Money, Rights, Contracts and Privacy. Here's a brief chapter summary so you know roughly what to expect. Various costs prevent us from cooperating creatively. It takes time, energy and money to find each other, bargain an agreement and enforce it. If only we could lower these costs, cooperation could be rich. Cryptographic ledgers, blockchains and smart contracts provide new arenas to reinvent cooperation. Innovators want to experiment and crypto commerce lets them do so. New media, scientific incentives and property rights, open, split or assurance contracts and cryptographically shielded transactions are just the tip of the iceberg. They free information, make money immutable, reinvent the rights to do things, compose contracts and privatize transactions overall. Most of these experiments will fail, but the few that succeed may usher in a new era of cooperation. It's hard to see how to get there from here, but in the next chapter, we'll take those first steps. Our special guests this time include Kate Sills, a wonderful independent software developer, Glenn Whale from Radical Exchange, and Paul K. Pam from the Forecast Foundation. Concepts we discuss include prediction markets, cryptography, contract automation, and property rights. If you like the book, follow it at Fawcett Institute on Substack. There will also soon be a physical book version available at Fawcett.org as well. Enjoy. Question number one. Uh, you know, we talk, uh, we, we start really with how um, crypto commerce and like related technologies can improve much of our cooperative structures. And the first one that we start with is information. And we kind of discuss a little bit of the history of the web. Uh, and then, you know, how we have kind of recreated a few of the centralizing dynamics and within the web right now, and are asking that, you know, now that many people are really working on decentralized social networks and, and other ways in which we can really improve the web that we have, uh, what features would you like the next knowledge and social media platforms to have? We discussed Zen a little bit in the book, but there's probably a lot more out there. And so I'm not sure who wants to start. Perhaps uh, even Paul, you want to uh, just give it a go. So if you think about the new information, um, you know, in infrastructure of the future. What are the few features that you think uh, these infosystems, you know, should really surely pertain? Yeah, um, it's a hard, it's actually kind of a hard question because what should they contain is different than like, what are they likely to contain? I think in, in, a, in reality, um, one of the things that we're seeing a lot of, especially in the crypto world and what that's given to us is the ability to kind of financialize anything. And I think often that's seen as like a bad thing, at least amongst like the world. Uh, you know, people are like, oh, that's just a way for people to make money or get rich or, you know, do all these kinds of things, take advantage of other people. Um, but I think that the ability for these systems to come through and to financialize that information in a way that actually allows all participants to uh, benefit from or have some say over that system is, is one place that um, I think that we're going to see a lot of of growth over the next 10 years. You know, like where we're at with crypto stuff right now is, you know, still a very small group of people are doing it. Um, all of these ideas, currently what we're seeing with NFTs, what we're seeing with prediction markets are these very kind of like basic forms of, of, of what this could be. Um, you know, still today, most NFTs are owned but what does that even mean we don't really have a concept of that in terms of like how does that like work for the legal structure currently that's the same thing for property you know people are trying all sorts of different schemes but we don't yet have 
a kind of a good, robust way of of kind of getting that information and the financial incentives for that information, like codified and, and sent to a group of people. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Um, and in the way that this merges with prediction markets, I actually think this this um, this piece that we have about um, of, of uh, replication markets is actually a really good good example where um, you know scientists or you know researchers in any one area can be doing a lot of research and generating a lot of knowledge, but they are still kind of siloed over there in their own little worlds and. If there is any way to actually expose that information to more people, adding monetary incentives is often a very good way to do that. It can also be a bad way to do it if you do it wrong, et cetera, I know. But there's that's at least one tool that we can see to do that. So I think that um, that the kind of the layer on top of all this information that we're going to start to see is people being able to um, kind of either monetize or... or um, uh, interact in a monetary way with information such that they are still like self-sovereign about it. Right. Um, and that's what I'm looking forward to. It's one of the reasons why when we were building Augur, we were so ridiculously decentralized about the whole thing. The idea being that like, even if a nation state tried to stop it from working, it would still work. Um, I think that that level of, of commitment to the freedom of information and that level to the commitment of the freedom of financialization of information is actually important for this to work in all areas. Um, even if in, you know, even if it works for, for some kind of small areas, um, without that, I think it's important that, that we, we set that as a goal. Um, one of the things that we all know is, you know, Robin Hansen's been doing his work on prediction markets for ever now since I was born, basically. And, and we still don't see them operating, right? Like, like we still don't see them operating in a, on a daily basis at a large scale, but we're starting to get it. They're starting to come out in these various ways. You see like the Facebook prediction stuff, right? This is a prediction market. It's not a financially incentivized prediction market. It's a socially incentivized prediction market uh, where people basically get reputation for doing it. And people are really into that. There's something about that sort of activity. So I'm looking at kind of this whole piece of how the information comes, how that ties into a financial system, and how every person can be incentivized at their level of interest to actually in, uh, engage with that in a in a, a positive way. I just said a lot of things. I don't know if that makes can sense. I, can I can I react a little bit to that? So, sure. um, uh, you know, you sort of talked about the importance of financializing so many things, and I don't want to be on the reactive, quote, anti-financialization side, but I would like to sort of emphasize that I think that a lot of the functionality that we actually need is limited by a exclusively financial frame. So like, for example, the NFT world focuses very much on bundling together all the different aspects of property rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, uses, abuses, and fructus. The reality is that while that's the like perfect imaginary of property rights, almost no rights in the real world actually do fully bundle together those three aspects. They're almost always partly decoupled from each other. So like if you think about me as an employee of Microsoft, I have uses rights over a lot of Microsoft property. I have abuses rights over a very narrow set of things. And I have fructus rights in a tiny proportion because I, I'm a very small shareholder of Microsoft, right? And 
uh, the ability to actually carve and program those things rather than to just financialize them is actually much more powerful. Financialization is actually a very narrow slice on the potential set of ways that we can carve these things up. And th- there's no economic theory that actually suggests that it's any in any sense an optimal way. Like, let's take the example of prediction markets. Prediction markets, everyone's excited about, but the reality is there is there is no economic theory. Like everyone says it comes from economics. There's no economic theory where prediction markets are actually a particularly good way to aggregate information in the case when anyone actually trades on it. So there's a degenerate case where no one trades on the market, um, where like that's supposed to give you the truth. But there's a thousand other mechanisms that would give you the truth as well. But in the case where there's actually trade taking place, what the market is doing is aggregating the beliefs of the people who have a lot of money and who are risk seeking or you know not too risk averse, right? That's what it actually does. There's no reason to think that that's actually what you want to be aggregating. And there's other mechanisms that are much less financialized that do involve incentives in various ways, like you were saying, but that are much less hyper-financialized that have a lot less of the downsides that models like that would suggest that you get. Um, and that I think integrate information in a much more interesting way. So like, I actually think we should think of the like purely financialized is actually like the 0.1 version and like these richer socially and partly economic mechanisms as uh, like where, where we actually should be aiming. It actually reminds me of like, there's the part of the, of the uh, chapter, you know, we're talking about split contracts and these kind of abilities to have, to have people be um, kind of involved in the process in various ways. And then there be parts of it, which are programmable or even financial in the, in this case. Um, I actually, one of the, you know, the main question here is like, where do we see prediction markets in daily life? I actually think that one of the most interesting places has nothing to do with like people betting on these large scale things, but for being a tool within the kind of, um, basically using them as a tool to get signal to speed up processes. That's actually my, my, my most interesting thing. One of the biggest pieces that we're seeing right now in the whole blockchain thing is like DAOs and governance, right? And basically no DAO has a good, there, there are no DAOs. I'm going to burst everybody's bubble. None of them are decentralized, autonomous, or organized. Zero of them are all three. And so the question is, can we use any of these tools, which previously we saw as a financial way to, to you know, get information or whatever, a prediction market? Can we use these to just speed up the process of getting consensus or of kind of understanding the level of consent that people have? And there's been some interesting work in that topic. So I think that's one place where we can really see this happening, where there are some financial incentives um, but mostly financial disincentives to lie. Um, but the the major thrust of the effort isn't just, you know, people that have enough money and enough thrill slash risk-seeking behavior to participate in that market. Yeah, so um, I'd like to go in a different direction with this question, if that's okay. Um, so the chapter talked a lot about uh, the rule of law when it comes to some of these social media platforms. Um, but I think that uh, the only reason why we would be interested in rule of law is because it's governing the commons. And I think that's where the problem lies, where, you know, social media is friendships or other types of relationships that happen online. That's not the commons, that's private, right? You should be able to end a friendship with someone uh, for whatever reason. 
And in the same way on in social media, you should be able to choose to interact with the people that you want to interact with and not interact with the people that you don't. And it's only because the social media platforms haven't really figured that out and they want to try to, you know, govern it for everyone and not really give people the power to shape the world around them um, that we come up with the kinds of problems that we have. Like there's no reason why Facebook is trying to decide, uh, you know, who should be on the platform versus the individual people deciding, oh, I don't want to interact with that kind of person. And in fact, I don't even want that kind of person close to me. Right. So I feel like if we, instead of having uh, these commons, which need rule of law, and, you know, that there's particular particular rules where if you violate those, you'll get kicked off. What we actually need is to be able to empower people to only interact with the kind of people that they want to interact with. So that means, you know, some of the features that we have already on on something like Twitter, you know, blocking, having block lists, things like that, but also having ways to search out the kind of people that you want to see where it's not just, you know, Twitter, like I get all kinds of um, recommended tweets from Twitter where it's like weird crypto stuff. And it's like, yes, I'm in the crypto industry, but that doesn't mean I want someone like shilling, you know, shit coins, right? So um, I just think the social media platforms are really bad at the kind of community building that we need, which is people actually creating relationships with each other and being able to break those relationships if it doesn't work out. Is it? Um, so I, I just gave a, a plus one to Kate's comments in uh, the chat. I, I do like the idea of social media moving towards very focused attention on um you know, uh, what you care about and less on sort of uh, what advertisers kind of want to bundle you into with other people. Um, but I, I wanted to primarily reply a lot to uh, PG's comments um, and, and also maybe share some thoughts I've had on, on prediction markets. So I, I've, um, from the research I've done on prediction markets uh, in, in practice and also in theory, it seems like with a surprisingly small amount of data, um, super forecasters can predict a lot about certain other statistics, some of which may actually be very useful. And um, the market has not yet taken their ability to do these things and then use them to drive um, what I'll broadly say is like, you know, stock prices or asset prices, but we could get there. Um, and the, the kind of... Um, thing I've, I've tried to focus on is um, what if, as a crypto guy, um, all of these cryptocurrency projects make various promises, like we will deliver X, Y, or Z. And um, people presumably buy their tokens because they expect those things to, to occur. Um, but there's a lot of like sleight of hand, a lot of like, you know, drifting and so on. And so I imagine that if, um, as you're purchasing these tokens, you can look at a prediction market that sort of describes, okay, what is the likelihood of this particular feature being delivered according to these specifications at this particular time? Um, and then I think you get a better better result. Um, and the sort of research I'm kind of maybe pulling from here is, is Block Science's research on um, what they call alpha bonds, um, which are these structures that um, basically have a, a bond that sort of people can invest in if they believe that a project is going to go well, or they can uninvest in if they believe a project is going to go poorly, which is very similar to a traditional cryptocurrency. But then they have this side market, which is more about, um, do you predict that this is going to go well? 
but you don't necessarily have to invest in the asset. And so I think that kind of hasn't gone too far, but I, I sort of follow up to that with, with another sort of uh, researcher we, we've, uh, we're working with basically takes the food target concept and instead of looking so much at prediction markets, looks at advice markets. So it's like, as a, I want to make a decision, but how do I allocate my funds in the way that I might give my, my vote, let's say to a proxy voter, or I might give my money to a trustee. I can give sort of my, my votes or my, my token allocations, um, some weight based on advice. Uh, that comes from a quote unquote expert who is theoretically doing some kind of prediction. And um, the, the nuances there, uh, you know, I can send a paper if people are interested, but essentially the advisor has to put some skin in the game um, in a way that maybe other, other kinds of advisors outside of this hypothetical don't. Um, but I, my point is that I think the, 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 the target I would look for for prediction markets is a merger between um, the, maybe not a merger, but a transfer of the, the analyst class in hedge funds and VCs to where the predictions that they make are more public um, and they're making them based on models that can be refined, like data models that can be refined, analyzed, and um, sort of uh, you know forked or whatever. Um, and I, I wonder if for anyone who's interested in prediction markets, if they feel like you know this sort of is a direction to go and maybe the, the, the final comment I would make is like, all of this in my mind should be about things that people already make financial decisions on, like what stock to buy or what token to buy, because I think that's where most capital allocation occurs. And so you get more funding in, in all these cryptocurrency or prediction markets. With Mark and Kate. So I think um, I want to first mostly be responding to uh, Kate's point about uh, rule of law and the commons uh, is that while we agree that uh, discretionary systems that serve as a commons can uh, create dynamics that uh, violate rule of law and, and create pathologies associated with with that with um, such violations that the decentralized systems uh, that are all based on choice by the users the those things are still held together by conventions and by protocols. Uh, you know, the Kate mentioned block lists, et cetera. And those things have an architecture. And that architecture serves as the rule of law for the dynamic of interaction through that system. Uh, and as an example that will uh, tie together uh, the the issues around social networks and the issues around prediction markets, uh, one of the, the emergent flaws that we've seen is polarization and people uh, hanging out with people that they like uh, and, and finding forums to discuss things that agree with them uh, can lead to bad polar, polarizing dynamics, echo chambers, filter bubbles, et cetera. Um, and I certainly don't propose any kind of centralized discretionary way to overcome that. But I think the degree of polarization is affected by the architecture. And in particular, one of the things that to me is fascinating about crossing social networks with prediction markets is prediction markets are inherently depolarizing. The opportunity in prediction markets is people who disagree with you. Uh, so you're naturally attracted to consensuses that are emerging 
that disagree with you and to bring your disagreement to them after you've placed bets that are counter to that to that emerging consensus. Yeah, I think I think that's a really, really interesting point about the prediction markets. Um, When it comes to the polarization, I think, unfortunately, what we're actually getting from the social media platforms right now is we're not hearing the best of the views that, you know, we're opposed to, right? We're hearing the worst of them. Um, And so, you know, um, the current solution to filter bubbles isn't, you know, let's let's get all these people together in a room and have them hear the best of the other side. It's, you know, let's quote tweet the worst. Right. Um, So, so to me, I think, you know, uh, people actually being able to build communities that, uh, that they like, even if the downside of that is polarization, I think it's still better than, than what we have right now. And the, um, the, the kind of thing that I'm thinking about, in addition to something like blockless is uh, on Twitter, I, um, a while back, I wrote a script that took uh, the usernames of the people that I respected on Twitter, found the people that they followed in common, and then followed them, right? Like, why doesn't that exist on Twitter already? Why are they suggesting some random, you know, person that I don't like? They should be, you know, uh, suggesting people that I respect, um, or the people that I respect, the people that they respect, Right. So, so I think there's just like a lot of work there if you are actually trying to maximize what people get out of social media platforms versus what, you know, advertising can extract from social media platforms or all the other things that we're optimizing for. So, yeah. So if we're trying to build communities and like uh, the Sprightly Institute, um, I'm, I really like what they're doing. And then Blue Sky as well. Uh with the the kind of cryptography that they've been doing. I think, you know, both of those efforts are really promising. Um, But the first thing is actually going back to what Paul said at the beginning, I think actually we have to take out a certain kind of financialization, which is advertising. Great. I'm sharing this brightly presentation that they gave um, recently here in the chat for those who want to follow up on this. But uh, we have... uh, uh, Blake and then Glenn. Okay. okay. Uh, if it's my turn here, thank you. Um, so I, I want to go one step further on this definancialization, and um, and with prediction markets, there, there's something you know nice about that uh, that maybe it would get people who disagree to actually you know come come disagree in, in public and uh, come to some resolution. That's all fine. Uh, but here's the problem that that disagreement can only be resolved and captured uh, in a sense that it's, it's measurable and it's factual. And so on, on predictive questions, yes, maybe we can come to agreement. But that's not where our real key disagreements lie. It's not simply about matters of predicting things and disagreeing on the future. Uh, it's really about disagreeing on value. And so in a sense, the prediction markets can really never capture or address values. Uh, and we can't make a claim that uh, you know, we find out next week that my values turned out to be the right ones. There, there's no such thing as that. Uh, how do we envision, you know, normative discourse and what it means to have, uh, what it means to have effective and salient normative moral discourse? Uh, it, it, it almost seems like it, it would defy financialization, but also would defy really anything that you could quantify uh, if we don't start first from the 
from the spiritual or from the the values based uh to then have to then even say what it means for a discussion to be productive towards those ends and can, can, can I uh, come back both to uh, the intersection of what Kate and Mark were talking about and what Blake, uh, there's another point on what Blake just said, because I think it's very important. On on the first one, this question of sort of like, what are good algorithms for dealing with social diversity and complexity and, and trust is, is way underinvested in. And Audrey Tong in Taiwan has started to go in this direction, but they're just like really interesting fundamental questions here. So like, for example, if we want to give um, incentives for creating things that bridge social difference, so like quadratic funding is an incentive scheme for dealing with the fact that there's interpersonal conflict, but it assumes that the social landscape is flat, that there's basically just a bunch of social atoms. And that then if you get cooperation across many social atoms that gets rewarded but if there's actually social structure where there are clusters of correlated you know or coordinating groups and what you actually want to incentivize is not lots of different individuals but rather that people from uncorrelated groups find a way to cooperate um and that we want to surface content like that or in kate's example it's not kate just that i want people who my friends follow it's that i want people who are followed by uncorrelated groups of my friends, right? It's like, if if I like follow someone who follows Vitalik Buterin and then a bunch of other people who I follow who also followed Vitalik Buterin all liked someone, that's like almost no signal. Like that's just saying this is some crypto person, right? Whereas if there is someone that I follow from my blockchain world who I also follow from my like politics world and, and they, like that's a really interesting person, right? So, and... And I think the financialization problem that you came to, Kate, I actually don't even think it's solved by the subscription type, do I add value to you model that you were saying for the following reason. I think it's a little bit solved by that, but not mostly. Because actually, what we want from a social network is an operative social network. We want a social network that works well. We don't actually want individual happiness of a single member of that social network. So the question is, who's willing to pay for the social graph being productive and effective it's probably some form of collective organization because there's collective value there that's going to spill out if you just look at it from an individual perspective it's basically some kind of a public good to some network right and so we need to find ways of actually funding these through the value that they're collectively creating for some network and not just a way of funding it that's purely driven by the individual pleasure that someone takes from participation in it so um that, that's speaking to that. Speaking to what Blake said, um, you know, I think, let me put an even sharper point on it, which is to say a fundamental problem, I think, with prediction markets is, yes, they're convergent on the question as posed to some extent. But um, that is an extremely linear, it's like, it's like there's, the and bits of information there are very, very small. And Actually, a lot of the information is going to come from conversations, long conversations like the ones we're having now. And the problem with the prediction market is it creates adversarial or at least potentially adversarial incentives within those conversations. Even though it on the very specific topic, all information being held fixed can aggregate for that topic. And so much of the information that we have is richer than the like 
few bits of like up down on this particular topic that are going to get aggregated through quadratic voting or through a prediction market. So it's very important to consider the incentive scheme that a mechanism creates for that broader nonlinear conversation outside of it and not just for the topic exactly at hand. That's why I think we need to think about these things in terms of deliberation, then the actual mechanism that does compromise you know, consensus, and what goes on afterwards, what groups and what structures it creates uh, from then on. Yeah, I want to uh, give Paul uh, some time to respond, and then I want to uh, go back to you, Glenn, to hear a little bit more about DSOC, because given that your time is limited, I want to make sure we definitely touch that, um, because that's been a recent, uh, very interesting advancement. So, Paul. I'll say a very short thing here, which is that we, um, this is actually like the problem that Glenn talked about is is one that we struggled with a lot. So in the Augur model, the the resolution of the predictions was also a decentralized operation, which meant that um, it, it kind of breaks the problem down and, and shows what the kind of roots of the prediction, prediction market actually is. And when the decentralized process is also resolving the market, you start to find that there's very few questions that you can actually resolve in a meaningful way. And by the time you've taken all of the kind of all of the nuance and risk off of the question, it's no longer particularly interesting. Um, the it, the one place where this isn't true is is things that end up looking a lot just like either current financial markets or raw betting. And the place where they look like current financial markets, prediction markets are actually a worse tool um, because they have capped gains, generally speaking, in the way that they're that that they're um, that they're structured. Right? You you you're kind of purely counterparty risk. And so people that are that want to participate in like the financial system version of this are more incentivized if they are a super predictor to take part in the purely financial asset like a like a futures market where they can take a really high leverage and make way more money. So you end up in this strange case where the people that are the best at doing it aren't going to na- make enough money to participate in your market. And it ends up being really strange. Okay, wonderful. Um, this was only the first of many discussion questions. <laughs> and we already, I think, had a really good, a really good uh, power out on this. So I don't think we're going to run out of topics to, to cover very soon. But I just want to jump ahead for a moment uh, while we still have Glenn with us. Um, Glenn recently published um, with Vitalik and third author was Puja Olhafer, I don't know, but um, I think maybe you can give, provide some context on this. Um, published uh, a really wonderful paper, Decentralized Society, Finding Refugees Soul. Um, and uh, that came after Radical Markets, which is what uh, Glenn was here to talk about to us last time. So perhaps now is a good time, I think a tiny time to revisit this. Do you just want to bring us a little bit up to speed on what the Decentralized Society is? First of all, I'd say uh, Puja would be a great member for your group, so you should reach out to her. Uh, Wonderful. We'll do thing. Uh, but second, so there, there's kind of two elements to DSOC, and I'll cover each briefly. One is just we talked about this notion of a soulbound token. It's not that different than a verified credential. It's not that different than lots of discussions about claims for years. So I think getting into the details of what a soulbound token is versus other things is kind of a distraction. I think the the more interesting thing uh, is what we think that those allow. So a soulbound token or verifiable, all these things are statements, verifiable statements made by one entity about another entity. Um, and uh, these will often be, rep- and, and they can't be transferred. They're not financialized. They're, 
they're about a particular identity effectively or or and that doesn't need to be that there's one identity per person or whatever but they're a cluster of things that is non-transferable about people and we actually think that can emerge from the system itself um and that's one of the really interesting elements of it so these can represent things like degrees they can represent uh being at a particular employer being part of a particular community um etc and um, some of the things that we think are really cool that you can do with these include what we're calling community recovery. So social recovery is, I think, one of the most interesting approaches to recovery within wallets. You basically uh, give to uh, a bunch of guardians, like a shard of your uh, ability to recover your wallet. So like, let's say three of your five guardians have to come together to recover the wallet. That requires maintaining relationships with those particular people. If they die, there's a problem, et cetera. Instead, our notion is that you accumulate a series of relationships based on these soulbound tokens that are in your wallet. And then the way you recover your wallet is basically that you get algorithmically queried for some subset of the, you know, of these. And then you have to get some subset of that, uh, someone else who holds those tokens to come and unlock your wallet. So like, you know, I might need to get someone from my employer or my last employer or whatever, someone from a university that I went to, et cetera. And those together effectively like own my ability to transfer those non-transferable assets between wallets. Um, and so this creates basically a decentralization of individuals to their social network and a decentralized decentralization of um, the communities that are, they're a part of to the people that are part of those communities. So it kind of creates a duality where the individual decentralizes just as much as the communities do. And then you can use computations over these things to do things like I was describing before, where um, you take into account the social structure when you uh, do things like quadratic funding, when you do things like content uh, moderation, quadratic voting, prediction, like all these sorts of things can then actually take that those social relational context in rather than just uh, having these abstract free-floating individuals and thereby offset what you might call collusion or correlation, et cetera. So that's, that's some examples of some of the things we think uh, would be part of decentralized society. You can also use it, of course, to do these things I said about debundling different aspects of property rights. Wonderful. Alan? Oh, yeah, I just want to make a, a terminology comment. Um, the W3C people went away from verifiable claims to verifiable credentials, because really what you're verifying is that the credential was properly structured and signed and all that. You're not actually verifying what it claims. And uh, that has led to that. They changed because it led to a lot of confusion in the community. So you might want to take that into account. Yeah, that was just a misstatement on my part. In the paper, we talk about verifiable credentials, not verifiable claims. Wonderful. Kate. Um, well, this is awesome. Um, so soulbound tokens are something that I've been really interested in since Vitalik uh, made the blog post about it. And the particular thing that I'm interested in is that it seems like they're a really good use case just for digital signatures on their own without having to use a blockchain. Um, so just to kind of explain this a bit for people who might not be in the know, um, the way that I see it is if you have something 
if you have something that is non-transferable, where the double spend problem isn't an issue, then uh, you don't necessarily need to put it on a blockchain, right? So if if all you're doing is saying, um, you know, I vouch that Mark Miller went to this conference, then I can sign that statement with my MetaMask private key, right? And then I can just, I can keep it private, which is really cool, or I can share it to the world. And then everyone else can validate that if they have my public key if, or if they have my address, that I did indeed uh, sign that, right? So from where I'm standing, this doesn't necessarily need a blockchain or tokens. It just needs the it just needs public key cryptography. But I understand, and I haven't read the paper, so excuse me if I'm missing things. I understand that revocability is an important feature. Is that right? Or help me put all of this together. Yeah. So I think revocability is an important feature, and also consent by the person who is receiving it is an important feature. That's not true of NFTs, obviously, uh, at present. Um, and I completely agree that this doesn't need to be on the blockchain. I think the, as I said, the, the exact details of the, um, like what you call these things and where they're stored is, uh, you know, a part of the paper where we try to focus on making it easy to onboard people from web three, but the, the core substance of it is what becomes possible with a network of these things and like what functionalities they, they enable to emerge. We had a poll, uh, a comment from Paul in the chat. I don't know if you want to make that fun. Oh, I was just saying, if you also have this, you can do even more fun things like you can generate zero knowledge proofs that you've been attested to by N individuals without exposing who those individuals are. And you can start to kind of, you can start building privacy into things as well. Um, starting thinking about it outside of the blockchain case actually, uh, I think it opens up the world quite a bit in terms of like some of the more fun mechanism design and the ways it can be useful. Yeah. Just to, just to give an example of that, like privacy is usually conceptualized in like the W3C standard as I, as the holder have the ability to show or not show whatever I want to. But I actually think what's most interesting and what this opens up is actually what I would call programmable privacy, which is not that like, so for example, if my employer, uh, if I'm, my employer is the CIA, they might not want me to be able to disclose or not disclose things about my employment relationship at my own free will. They might want to be queried before I disclose that, right? Or if I'm in a affair or whatever, you know, that, that's similarly, like you actually want uh, privacy things to potentially be programmably social and only partially under a single individual's control. And that's the sort of interesting thing that I think gets opened up in this space. Well, while we still have you here, and I know we already kind of like four minutes over your time, but um, do you just want to say very briefly on how that could also allow decomposable shared rights? Absolutely. So, I, you know, a, a very, very simplistic illustration of what's like limited about the current Web3 ecosystem is basically a rental contract is not really possible in the Web3 ecosystem. Right. The reason is that if you give someone an NFT with the right to like enter a house for some period of time, they can just sell that to someone else, which completely undermines the notion that you can't sublet lease. Right. So even something as basic as a rental contract does not really work in the current ecosystem. But if you had this sort of SBT or VC or like there's lots of different technical standards that could get different aspects of this, but this notion of this non transferable attestations allows you then to basically give certain people 
the rights to access the space, give other people rights to vote on changing it. So you can have a collective determination of, you know, abuses rights, like the right to change or alter. And then you can have the financial flows go to other people. And you can program these in all sorts of super interesting ways. Like there's this Harburger tax also thing that I've talked about here before, which sort of auctions off those abuses rights in a continuous way where you self-assess the value and then blah, blah, blah. And, and that's really just the beginning. The reality is like, we're only starting to imagine what powerful and economically, you know, efficient ways we have to uh, rearrange these rights that are in a simplistic thinking bundled together in private property. And these SBTs, I think, just give us a huge amount of power to do that. Like you can give some community of people the right to have an option to purchase an asset based on a self-assessed value, but people without that token don't have it, you know? So, so there's, yeah, anyway, there, there's a lot to, lot to explore here. Yeah, Kate, I would love to hear from you because I think uh, in your last presentation, you were discussing NFTs for engineering property rights. So, and perhaps you also have a few thoughts. I don't know if you're thinking on this, has it all updated or whether or not you think that relates to solar terminal. Yeah, um, well, it's a lot to get into, but I would say if I were to summarize my last presentation, it would be if you're creating NFTs, you're creating property rights, whether you want to or not. And so it's not that, uh, you know, if you want to invent new property rights, you have to use NFTs. Um, I'm actually saying uh, kind of the, what, what would it be, the converse of that, whatever it is. Um, I'm saying if you are building NFTs, you're dealing with property rights and you have to learn about law and economics and property rights. So, yeah, so I'm, um, I'm very interested in soul bound tokens, uh, but not by that name. I'm very interested in, you know, people digitally signing certificates about, you know, facts about the world. Cause I think a lot of the, um, a lot of what we think blockchains can do, um, can actually just be done through the underlying cryptography. So, When you think about like a blockchain for say a supply chain, um, well, you know, if you're taking like grain right out of the field, right. And then you want to track that all the way to it ending up in, you know, your bread and Safeway or something. Um, it's actually being transformed quite a bit throughout that whole process, obviously. So then if you're trying to do that in tokens on a blockchain, uh, then someone has, has to have the power to be able to burn some tokens and mint new tokens, right. That represent this new thing. But then um, how are we, how do we know that what is a token on a blockchain is actually an accurate representation in the real world, right? Well, that's some kind of assertion. So I think if you break that down and you kind of drop the idea that it has to be tokens, what you're really doing is just everyone along the supply chain is digitally signing statements about the world. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about kind of getting outside of the idea of everything has to be tokenized and actually just using the cryptography, the digital signatures that make up blockchains in the future. I mean, um, you know, in the first place. So um, another aspect to this is, of course, uh, tamper evident logs, where you might not need a completely decentralized blockchain, but you might just be able to use um, uh, hash pointers to make sure that, you know, something hasn't been changed. 
Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, um, I think in our pre-discussion around this, uh, you were saying that you're really diving into that uh, entire topic a little bit. So uh, if you're interested, I don't know if you have uh, any slides or if you want to show a few bits as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I just have some slides on digital signatures. I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to judge um, uh, what people know already and what they don't. So, you know, please don't be mad at me if everyone knows everything on this already. Um, I feel like a lot of people in the blockchain industry, um, when they sign up, you know, you get your seed uh, phrase and then you're doing things. But I think maybe they don't realize that what's actually happening in terms of what you're signing and how that actually gets on chain. So um, let me just see if I can share here. I just made you go on those. I should also say okay. that, you know, Glenn, in case you have to off, I just want to take some space to thank you for uh, for jumping on today. Um, and yeah, we'll hear from Kate now, uh, but we'll go uh, until the hour, I guess, with our speakers, and then we have some uh, more of a breakout discussion. So thanks. Okay. Am I sharing? Yes. Excellent. Um, okay. So I don't actually have uh, very much to display here, but basically... There are three things that I, that cryptography, just basic cryptography, like um, using cryptographic hashes, using uh, public key cryptography, using uh, tamper evident logs, um, just using basic cryptography, you can actually do a lot. And none of this requires putting data on a blockchain, which might be very costly if you're, you know, counting in uh, gas costs. And of course, it's a bottleneck because uh, you're trying to, if you're trying to put something on a blockchain, then you're sharing the space that everyone else wants to use, right? So so I think there's a lot that we can do that is not actually putting something on a blockchain. So, you know, with um, with just basic cryptography, you can have unalterable documents, right? So if you um, hash a document and you keep the hash and that hash doesn't change, um, then you can, in the future, um, you know, take what you think is the same document, try to hash it again, and then compare the hashes, right? So you get unalterable documents uh, where you would notice if any changes had been made just from cryptographic hashes. Then um, with public key cryptography, you get unforgeable signatures, right? So, um, and that's actually what I'm going to go into a bit here. Um, and then with um, tamper evident logs, so just hashing documents and then, you know, putting them in a chain. Um, such that there's hash pointers connecting to the previous document. So this is what um, Satoshi actually built on, um, but it's from like 1999, or sorry, 1991, Haber and uh, Spernetta, um, who invented this. Um, so with that, you can know that a document existed at a certain point in time. So um, so by digital signatures, I don't mean, you know, the thing on the left here. I don't mean just like putting an electronic version of a signature on a page. That's not what I'm talking about, Right. I'm talking about uh, the things on the right. So um, Adobe does have this um, where you can sign with uh, with a private key over the document. As far as I can tell, it's not really widely used. But when you do that, um, what you get is the thing at the top right there. But, you know, a digital signature is just data. So more often, you're going to see it in a hex format where it's just a whole bunch of, you know, numbers and letters like that. Um. So the way that digital signatures work, um, there's a private key um, and whoever has your private key is able to sign. Um, so hopefully that's just you, but if you reveal your private key, then you know anyone can sign. 
Um, and then there's their, your public key. And anyone who has your public key can easily verify your signature. So um, the way that it would usually work is, let's say there's a signer and then there's a verifier. And um, the signer can publish uh, their public key. And then they can digitally sign documents. And then the verifier, um, somehow they look up the public key. Um, and then they're able, just given the public key, they're able to verify the signature. So um, let's see. So what's really cool is that uh, if you are passing around a signature and a document, it doesn't matter whose hands it falls into. You know, it could fall into the most malicious person's hands in the world but they're not able to forge the signature. So the person on the other end, so if Alice is trying to, you know, send this document to Bob and trying to, you know, ensure that um, Bob actually gets the right thing, uh, there's no way that Mallory can produce a signature that will um, appear to be signed by Alice just using the cryptography, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's all that I wanted to show. I'll stop sharing but I, what I found is that a lot of people in the blockchain space kind of missed this, like just missed the digital signature part of things because it's not really taught in any of the tutorials or anything like that. But it's it's very strange to me because it I think um, it's hugely powerful. It'd be hugely powerful for business. There's a lot to work out in terms of you know how do you rotate your keys if you lose them, um, uh, you know just the mechanics of how to keep private keys private and things like that. But in terms of, you know, it being useful for business and industry and things like that, I think it's hugely useful. Wonderful. Any comments and questions maybe from Paul or Glenn to this? Any like wish on that? Mark? Uh, mostly just to agree with Kate here that, I actually encounter a lot of people that don't quite understand what's happening um, behind the scenes or even like, like the difference between um, um, like what ownership means in the world where you're like signing a thing is just like a concept that people can't quite even get. There's like this real attachment to kind of like the skeuomorphism of an account and a wallet and this like, oh, well, I own the asset because of whatever, but like, uh, so the project I'm currently working on, Flow, like our our accounts don't even have a single key. They can have infinite keys on them. We have accounts that have five thousand keys that have threshold threshold signatures to take actions. Like, what is what is a property right in that case, right? And so many of the models that we're using, even for governance, rely upon this kind of like strange property right where where people don't understand how much more power there is you know you can aggregate bls signatures and send tiny little packets of data that prove you know a, a large amount of signatory what does that mean how do we use that in order to do more interesting things in the world i saw a mute hand up i'm not sure if it's relevant if so go for it and then also the pressure either way all right mark any comments Oh, I see we have Steve here as well. Welcome. If you were, I mean, you've worked a ton, uh, you know, in that space. Do you have any bits and pieces you want to contribute? No pressure. I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's nice to see you. Oh, hi. Yeah. I, just one comment. As you've been discussing, I've been thinking about what AI does for all of this. And in particular, right now, AI is going through a big transition where large language models 
can hallucinate and lie. And they're trying to figure out how do you get more truth out of large language models. And so that made me think about some of the things that we've been talking about here. Uh, is it possible not to just have a prediction market? Is this true or not? But rather to have the evidence that backs that up and have people compensated for providing pieces of the evidence and sort of validating not just the final statement, but rather a whole you know chain of evidence or a line of reasoning. And uh, could you sort of move more of the innards of AI reasoning systems onto uh, the sort of systems that you're talking about? I love it. You already, yes, Kate. Yeah. So um, I'm not in the AI space, not an AI expert. So, um, but I will say one thing that I think we don't make enough use of is uh, something. Um, let's see. It's it's non uh, reputability, right? So if if AI makes a statement or you know there's some kind of output, right? Um, it is useful to be able to prove that the AI said that versus that the AI might have said that we don't know, you know, uh, maybe that was the outcome and so forth. So I think like even just having uh, the output being signed by some entity is actually extremely useful. Um, and it's it's strange that we don't see this more often in the crypto space. Like so something like Infura that provides data to all of the, you know, the Web3 dApps. Um it does not sign its own data. So if Infura was providing the wrong information, or you know, let's say that uh, there was some reason that it might want to provide the wrong price to be able to, um, um, you know, uh, allow other people to undercut it, or you know, some kind of financial uh, market manipulation, right? Um, right now, you would just have to get a screenshot or something, and then Infura could say, well. Actually, we never did that. The screenshot is false, right? Um, so, yeah. So I think just um, having signed statements could help a lot to at least prove that it was said. And then, you know, you would have to work backwards from there to show why it was actually wrong. But at least proving that it was said is a huge step forward. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to dig further into this comment Steve made and just say I'm very fascinated by uh, what I've, I call sort of the decentralized hive mind. I think I heard about that from um, Ollie, who uh, I believe spoke to this group, and, and I certainly learned about his research through Foresight. Um, yeah, I, I, I think everything Kate is saying around societies that essentially, like, more small groups of people may not, maybe not, like, very, very large societies, that... Um, use cryptography to prove statements about themselves or others, but not necessarily in a way that uh, requires what we might consider in traditional crypto markets value transfer is fine. Uh, but I actually still believe that these tokenless um, cryptographic like networks probably should still be attached to blockchains. And the reason for that is I believe that um, these like minor sort of attestations can be used as inputs into AI models that can then do social coordination. And there may be some value. Yeah. Allison just pasted this article, which I refer to very often. Um, and so I, yeah, I can totally see a world in which um, market behavior or even cryptographic network behavior is used as inputs in AI models. Um, and yeah, I, I, very fascinating space. We probably will discuss a lot more specifically in this group.
right. Anyone want to touch on well, that? Okay. No. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. So one of the one of the topics that's you know come up in various guises during the session uh, is one that I very much sympathize with, which is the uh, the overstressing of financialization. And the way I come at this is very much related to why the book uses the term voluntary cooperation is that there are many spontaneous orders by which human beings cooperate with each other, uh, that voluntary cooperation produces many good adaptive spontaneous orders with, with good emergent properties. And economics explores one very important slice through that, but it's only one of many. Uh, others, for example, are natural language, which we come back to over and over again in the book. It's it's a great example of sort of the most decentralized, spontaneous order that's that's clearly adaptive and working. Uh, there are no decision-making bodies, but we all arrive at a mapping from words to meaning uh, that's not precise, that changes over time, that's adaptive to changing concepts, but uh, still has an emergent coherence because we all have an incentive to want to be understood by each other. Uh, there's uh, the scientific process, the you know the the uh, Karl Popper and these Xanadu structures inspired by Karl Popper, which are all about the evolution of knowledge under pressure of criticism, uh, and um, uh, you know Kate's comment about. Uh, uh, quote tweeting the worst of the other side is is very germane there. One of the things we tried to bring about was the backlinks uh, and the endorsed backlinks, so that you get the best uh, the best criticism from the other side of what you're reading, rather than seeing the criticism of the worst of the other side. Um, uh, and there's um, uh, in scientific papers there is the wonderful spontaneous order of the giving of credit. If as a referee, I see a paper that is not giving sufficient credit to other papers that had the ideas that this paper is building on, uh, you know, I, I comment on that negatively and I hold that paper in lower regard. So there is this self-reinforcing incentive to give proper credit. And then those things that give proper credit get proper credit, uh, and one of the things that I find very, very interesting is that our culture has all sorts of taboos on financializing things. Uh, some of these, I think, are very misconceived. They're very maladaptive. Uh, for example, the taboo on financializing markets in, uh, in organ transplant, uh, I think, are doing much more harm than good. But at the same time, I think some other taboos on financialization might help to keep the signals provided by some of these other spontaneous orders, keep them being good signals. An example of that would be, uh, that was, was actually discussed at one of the uh, other foresight workshops, um, was uh, if I pay people to give credit to my paper, then the signals produced by citations and related work sections of paper, those signals get corrupted. 
So taboos against financialization can sometimes be very, very adaptive um, because financializing the activities producing those signals can destroy the uh, quality of the signal produced. Um, and uh, so, so I want to relate this to one of the things that I'd hoped was one of the most controversial things in the chapter, uh, I think also one of the most um, important things in the chapter, uh, which is the issue that comes up over and over again in crypto commerce, which is the correspondence between the records in the cryptographic records, whether they're uh, verified credentials or whether they're uh, 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 title records on the blockchain to various kinds of NFTs or other claims, the, the correspondence between those records and the real world. Uh, how does a title listing on the blockchain to a piece of property and signing that piece of external property to a particular person, is that respected? Does that, is that considered legitimate? Uh, and I think that the analogy between that and the, the vocabulary problem of the correspondence of words to meaning is a very rich area to be explored. Is there one definitive title listing that we should take as definitive? So if that one thing is changed, then we should then it's good for us all to regard it as legitimate. Or should there be more of an, a, a process of several title listings and a judgment of an emerging consensus among them? Uh, being the thing that we regard as legitimate. And, and the whole notion of legitimacy itself is very much this emergent phenomenon of expectations of expectations. That, that's really what the, the, the meaning of this correspondence has to ultimately be founded on, is this emergent notion of considering the correspondence to have legitimacy. Okay, so many hands up, Kate, Paul, Steve, in that order. Yeah, um, so I was trying to put a finger on what troubled me about the analogy um, when I was reading the chapter, because I think that uh, language is, it, it's it's quite different than what we're actually trying to accomplish when we talk about the you know the correspondence between the cryptographic records or the tokens in the real world. So with language, um, we succeed with language if we succeed in communicating, and but that might include evoking emotions, uh, you know, solidifying a relationship, you know, a lot of things that don't really necessarily have to do with reality, right? Like. Um, uh, I mean, we see this all the time, right? Gifted politicians may be incredible at speaking, but everything they're saying may have no correspondence whatsoever with reality, right? So, so there's a lot of aims with communication that have nothing to do with um, with the real world. But with when we're trying to find the correspondence between the cryptographic records or the tokens in the real world, what we're really doing is auditing, right? So, you know, it's the same as any other the correspondence between any other records in the real world. Um, there is a reality and there are people whose, you know, their entire profession is trying to make sure that the records match the reality. There's no such, I mean, I guess we have dictionaries, 
but there's and and you know certain countries like France have you know language authorities right but there's there's not uh the need for a huge profession of making sure that your words match the reality right i mean you're free to use whatever words you want and i think the reason for that is that the stakes are a lot lower you know in in business it's really important that you know the amount of cash that you have on hand is actually the amount of cash that you have on hand right I mean, you know, and it's it's um, if you're trying to put it in different flowery language, flowery flowery language, right? Like that doesn't change the reality of how much cash you have on hand. So I think, yeah, I, I think there's not an analogy there in terms of the kind of auditing practices that we need to make sure that records match the real world and the kind of decentralized form that language takes. Um. And while I, I actually very much agree with Kate, they're very different things, but they are building to a certain intuition, which is kind of nice, um, which is that the world operates in like a relational model, right? Language operates in a relational model between not just like the thought I had or the information I know, but like how we all perceive it. And that kind of starts to define the reality of language. My wife's a PhD student for freaking consciousness studies. This is all we talk about. Like, how do we know what we know, Right. And so um, the the I think the cool part about this kind of pulling back to Glenn's paper um, is that what the soulbound token world or the you know decentralized society idea is starting to come to is that how can we both use these cryptographic primitives to provide real information, but then link them together such that we have the relational information to do the things that our brains do particularly well, or maybe what AI can do particularly well, draw inferences between them in order to kind of add some extra level of information while also grounding them in fact and reality and provable statements in the cases where those matter. Um, so while you were talking, that's really what was coming into my head. It was kind of like, oh, the emergence thing really feels similar to what we're talking about in the uh, DSOC stuff. So I, I totally agree with you, Mark. And I thought I'd give you an example from last week of when Luna crashed along with UST, that stressed a whole bunch of systems. And many of these systems work really well if they're not under stress. But so one example was there was a smart contract that lets you borrow, I think, Bitcoin if you collateralize it with another currency. And you had to collateralize it with something like twice the amount you wanted to borrow. And how do they get the information of what that other currency is worth? Well, there's Chainlink, which is a, a nice hybrid uh, smart contract system that you know has an oracle and provides information. And it works great most of the time. But when Luna was crashing, Chainlink says, oh, my God, this data doesn't make any sense. It's moving so fast. We don't know what to do. And they halted their uh, their oracle. And so the smart contract didn't really have anything special for that. And so it kept the last price. And so uh, whatever the attacker was, had what, what at that moment was something like $24 million of Luna, which actually was only worth a few dollars. Luna had crashed so much. So he used that $24 million of Luna to borrow $12 million of Bitcoin or something like that. Uh, and then, of course, disappeared. And so, um, you know, the... The smart contract was was validated. The Oracle was mostly working, and yet they hadn't accounted for that stressful situation. And so the disconnect between the, the reality in the real world and the, the internal model of it um, ended up costing somebody $12 million. <laughs> 
I think Paul had a correction there or at least a commentary. Um, it's actually just kind of not quite true. Chainlink's interface actually clearly states the limits upon which they will resolve those things. And the smart contract that was using them as an Oracle ignored it, right? So I know that that seems like a, a nitpick, but like, I think they're, they're, they're one of the other, the other pieces of the chapter that really got me was this idea that like, it took a long time for law and legal contracts as they are worded to kind of create enough consensus that we've taken into account enough of these edge cases that generally speaking, the really bad things don't happen, right? And we're still really early in the smart contract world. And most of the smart contracts that people are using, particularly on Ethereum, have been copy and pasted over and over again, but have not been really turned into this robust system. So I think kind of what we're seeing is the working out of that and um, it's too bad a bunch of people have to lose money with their ris- risky assets by doing it. But like, um, it's more of a, I, it's actually in, in a weird way, I kind of think it's a good thing because um, it shows, it, it's sort of exposing with enough pain these edge cases that people will actually take action on them. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to maybe amplify the direction that Mark started and then Steve kind of commented on and then also um, maybe address the criticism that, that Kate had around it. So um, if you consider the the cash on hand example that Kate brought up, um, the, the chain link Oracle situation, although uh, you know uh, Paul had this correction on it, sort of is in my mind um, in the flavor of like, you know, analyses as to say how, how auditable is an audit really, right? If you look at it, a balance sheet of a multi-billion dollar company and they say they have, you know, a hundred million dollars in cash in particular department or whatever, that's probably, there are probably all of these uh, contingencies that are not there on the balance sheet. There's, hey, maybe the Oracle, if we're using some crypto um, token, it, it can, can fail and that's this token actually isn't worth what we say it's worth. Maybe it's the custodian I have isn't necessarily reliable. And if there's actually a regime change in a particular country, we no longer have access to that capital. Um, there are all sorts of these like weird contingencies, and um, someone else made this this comment that yeah, law or Paul, Paul I believe made it that that like law hasn't quite um, caught up to uh, all the different nuances that exist in crypto. But really, the only reason that law works, the only reason that we have this concept of auditability, is that there's relatively simple contracts or or let's say agreements that can be made absent like major uh, innovations in, in financial technology or really any kind of technology. Um, but I, I want to go maybe a step further and say that if there's some fuzziness in the concept of auditability, there's also a sense of like desired auditability in language. Um, I kind of feel that language is this kind of layer that we use to communicate absent like any specific goal. Um, we just sort of want to be able to look at things in the real world and point to them and like mean the same things. And so essentially what's happened is there are these utterances that people kind of cohere on to like mean the same thing. But there's also slang and there's dialects and things which show people kind of evolve, right? Language is not a, a steady state that we sort of hit. And um, if you think about the things that go all the way from um, misspeaks that you make or in-jokes with your friends, all the way up to maybe memes that are relevant to your your network but don't appear on Urban Dictionary, and then on and on and on down to dialects and then maybe legitimate changes to language, I think that there's a lot of like these smaller in-groups, let's say, that are uh, playing with um, meaning 
in a way that is pretty similar to the way that crypto is allowing us to play with value. And I, I would love to see kind of a merger of these, these two concepts where um, memes that may be floating around academic circles like ours um, are referred to in some way uh, in what you might consider as like slang or shorthand or something like that. But people can still build financial markets on the viability of, let's say we've discussed, I don't know, 10 or 20 different novel ideas. Like while they're still in their infancy and they, they haven't uh, been, been very uh, well developed, um, people can start thinking about betting markets on them or at least can do some kind of financialization or value analyses. So I, I really do see this analogy between on language, on, on one hand, kind of being about communication, but having these little variants and so on. And then and then financial markets being kind of supported by the concept of audibility, but actually having a lot of nuance when you dig into like, you know, a very specific fine-grained audit. It, we had Ryan raised his hand through the chat and then Kate. Hi, uh, am I coming across, across clearly? Very. Check, check. Great. So I'd like to challenge Mark's question to define where overlapping meaning needs to be defined. Um, for instance, are the assets in-network or out-of-network? And by in-network, I mean, you know, were they are they native to some environment that doesn't require externalization? Um, and out-of-network being trying to address something like maybe a piece of land in the real world. In a polycentric legal environment, attempting to address non-internal assets, the attack might be to use a claim two different ways in two different neighboring legal environments. That's my read of, of the, the question that Mark is bringing up. Um, but that's kind of the same problem as having two title registries in the first place, claiming ownership over the same underlying property. And you know, wouldn't that be resolved if customers of those registries commonly find that their registry is not a full authority over external assets, then the resolution would might naturally be the losing registry, the one that has more authority, decreases in value and customers wouldn't go to that registry anymore. Unfortunately, uh, this is what wars are currently fought over, so I can see Mark's interest in finding a better solution. But... Um, I mean, I think the question sounds to me not to be one of language so much as what do you do when two entities claim authority over the same out-of-network uh, asset? I just to, m to make sure I just understand the the comment, um, uh, I'll wait to respond until after Kate. Uh, uh, when you say out of network, could you clarify what what you mean by that? Is by network do you mean the digital network, and by out of network do you mean out of the digital realm, or, or a different distinction? Right, um, that was the weak point in my comment. Um, Bitcoin is really good at uh, only referring to um, uh, things that it are created in in its code base. Um, you, it can only try, uh, uh, try to adjudicate ownership over Bitcoins that were created using its uh, consensus rules. Um, when people try to say, well, I've, I've got a, an NFT for my piece of uh, real property, um, then that 
is what I mean by out of network. Uh, that okay. that is something that another title registry already tries to work with, and they, um, you know, I could create my own blockchain for saying I'm selling my my house, but nobody's going to believe it. And that I I see your question as kind of um, evolving, or maybe devolving is the wrong color, um, uh, analog analogously similar to that question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so first I, I agree with everything that you just said, Ryan, I, th I thought that was fantastic. Um, I, the way I've been describing what you were calling out of network is, uh, off chain. So like, so anything that you're exactly right. Anything that is not like if, if it's the Bitcoin chain and you're talking about Bitcoin, then that that is what I would call on chain. But if you're now talking about colored coins in the context of Bitcoin, where each Bitcoin is supposed to represent something, some asset in the real world, then I think that matches what you were calling out of network. And it's um, anything that is... Uh, trying to represent something that exists in the real world or some concept that is not natively on chain, you have this correspondence problem where, you know, what you actually have is some, some person, some entity, some company asserting that there's some kind of correspondence and there may or may not actually be. And I think uh, going back to Mark's, um, the, the original assertion in, uh, in chapter five, about using language as an analogy and, you know, how language is able to function in an incredibly decentralized way, right? Where we all, we all drop the words that we don't like, and we keep using the words that we do like. Um, I, uh, again, I think that we can't really use language as the example here. And so I took a few classes from George Lakoff when I was in college. Um, I, one of my majors was cognitive science and he has this idea, um, uh, contested concepts, I think was the idea, where there are certain words in the English language where it is actually beneficial that they mean different things to different people. So if I'm a politician and I give a speech about freedom, people are going to hear that. Some people are going to think that I mean gun rights. Other people are going to think that I mean, um, you know, uh, the freedom to, uh, you know, choose your job or the freedom to tell your, you know, boss to go to hell or, you know, so, something like that, right? Everyone's going to read into it what they want, and it may be completely contradictory things. So, you know, there are these words that that mean things that are completely contradictory, and it is actually beneficial that they do so uh, for, because then people can use them and everyone will like what they're saying, even if they wouldn't like the particulars, right? So, if we map that onto what you were just talking about, where it comes to, you know, like we, there is this particular piece of land, uh, there's property title that should be associated with that piece of land. If um, I choose to represent that piece of land in, you know, one token on one blockchain and then another token on another blockchain, and I'm hoping that no one will find out that I'm effectively double spending this piece of land. Um you know, then that has real consequences that I think even if the contested concept of, you know, like the word freedom being used in completely different ways, even if that's bad, it's not bad to the same extent as double spending this piece of land. 
right? So I think there's, um, I'm having trouble putting my finger on like exactly the word to represent. Now, now that I'm getting meta, but exactly the word to represent what the difference is here between the decentralization in terms of language and the decentralization in terms of something like property title. But for something like property title, you really want a single source of truth as much as possible. Like, um, so countries like Australia, they have the Torrent system where every there is one central registry. You don't have the you know title insurance companies with all their private databases. And you know, I, I'm someone who's an anarchist, but like I think just from a technological perspective, you can see that having a single source of truth is so much more useful than having all of these other, you know, sources of truth. And the only way in which that goes wrong is when the single source of truth, you know, isn't trusted anymore. Right. So, so anyways, um, I said a lot there, but, but I, I really think there's something very different about language than there is about property title. One of the, forms of adaptiveness that for me is very much rap, um, related to this issue of, of emergent legitimacy is the change in concepts over time. So, uh, so first of all, let me agree with Kate about the double spending. Uh, the scenario we have, we have in mind is, is, is uh, of multiple title registries is not that they're unknown to each other or that people using the title registries don't know about the conflicting uh, title listing, uh, but rather that uh, a, uh, a system in which there's multiple title registries over the same claims with the convention that a change of ownership is reflected uh, uh, in multiple title registries, and then the the regarding of it as legitimate might re, might um, involve consulting multiple title registries and decide and and deciding what you consider to be a consensus among them. The problem is that any one title registry will embody once again in this in this protocol sense of different protocols with different architectures will embody some policy decisions. Uh, but more interestingly, the correspondence the, to the real world, the blockchain itself cannot bring about the correspondence, whether it's one title registry or multiple title registries. The correspondence to the real world has to do with people in the real world acting on the sense of legitimacy to take action. So, for example, uh, if somebody doesn't vacate the house that they no longer own according to whatever is regarded by the people involved as a legitimate state of no longer owning it, uh, then they get evicted. And then the, the issue of dispute, as, as, as somebody mentioned, I think, Ryan, uh, this is what wars are fought over. Uh, dispute is not something we can make go away by having by trying to have single authoritative title registries. Uh, that the title registry is only authoritative if the initial ownership that it's encoding is itself taken to be legitimate. 
And there's nothing the blockchain can do. There's nothing that the world of cryptography can do to get rid of genuine dispute over the legitimacy of the prior ownership before the title listing. So, uh, uh, and then with regard to the change in concepts, this is where I think that the issue of um, uh, radio spectrum becomes such an interesting issue, which is uh, before radio spectrum, we might've had a very, very little literal interpretation of the geometric slices of land and the projection from the earth's core through the, the, um, uh, through the property boundaries, defining a, a sort of conical uh, geometrically literal right. Uh, but then with the, uh, the concept of, with the invention of radio and the value of radio spectrum, the radio, a given frequency over a given land area would cut horizontally through all of these vertical slices creating a worst-case transaction cost to try to acquire the right to broadcast at a given frequency. So language adapts to, to, um, to change the meaning associated with words in subtle but adaptive ways so that it becomes meaningful in the world in which we have new concepts. We use the Example of the wonderful paper, uh, wonderful paper title, When Heat and Temperature Were One. Uh, there was a time when we didn't know that they needed to be two separate concepts. Uh, then we discovered that there was, that we needed to separate the concepts. We already had the terms heat and temperature being used as kind of synonymous words, and then they nucleated into different sides of the distinction. Uh, what I can imagine that we can go into the design of these legitimacy supporting frameworks such that what is regarded as the legitimate interpretation of a symbolic title into actionable rights to real-world property is also one that comes to be adaptive in the culture to the evolution of new concepts such that uh, it can be an emergent legitimacy to not preserve the literal geometric uh, interpretation of the property in order to allow the cross-cutting radio spectrum property to not need to be negotiated by trade with the existing spatially geometric property. Uh, th thanks, Mark. I also wanted to comment on uh, your comments, Kate. Uh, I spent a, a summer with Lakoff um, uh, studying metaphor and uh, how does metaphor work and the extent to which normal human discourse uses metaphor in all these ways that we're not normally aware of. And I think, like you're saying, Mark, that part of the purpose of human language is to adapt to changing circumstances. And so it is flexible. And we can have the same word mean two different things to different people. We can write poetry and all oh, that's wonderful and great, but that's no good for legal contracts because of the legal contracts, we've got to agree. And so it's interesting that the legal world uh, has created legal language, which is more precise in meaning, in particular like patentees I've had some experience with, is this weird, strange language 
that expresses inventions that the inventor maybe doesn't even understand. Uh, and then smart contracts, today they're mostly written in kind of programming languages, so they have some precise meaning that the compiler of that language uh, determines. Oftentimes, the user of that contract does not understand that meaning, though, and so they can have unexpected uh, consequences. That's something I think we really need to change. In particular, it would be really great to connect the formal language with natural language so that you could uh, express in a way like what are the gotchas in this contract before it, before you use it. And so I think in the AI world, connecting natural language and formal language is one of the kind of hot things that I think is coming about. There's starting to be a bunch of theorem provers based on transformers, which are natural language uh, you know, uh, systems. And interestingly, if you train these formal language uh, uh, transformers on natural language, they do much better at proving theorems also. And so natural language has within it almost all of the components of formal language, of you know mathematical logic and so on, but it has it in a much more fluid mechanism. And so bridging that gap, I think, is one of the, the great challenges uh, for, for us and for the world. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think there's so much that's incredibly interesting happening in the area of computational law. So um, I, I know Foresight has had uh, the legalese folks, you know, come in and talk about about uh, what they're working on. And, um, you know, there's there's so much there in terms of how do we actually translate natural language into this more precise legal language that we need? And how can we even make the legal language so precise that we can write it in code, right? So I, that's an incredible area that I would, in a second life, I would love to get into. <laughs> um, so I think uh, what you brought up, Mark, about um, about property rights is really interesting because, um, I, and I think this is where actually I was um, having the issue is where like language is kind of majority rule, right? If, uh, if someone creates a new word and it takes off, then if the majority of people adopt it, then it's a new word, right? Or you could you could have sub segments of um, the population, subsets of the population where you know they have obviously a different dialect or a different language, right? But property rights um, are specifically not majority rule, right? Um, it, the important thing about property rights is that even if some bully wants to take your property. Uh, they should not be allowed to take your property. And even if this bully is able to get, you know, uh, get the entire rest of the community um, to go against you, the bully should not be able to take your property. And so, um, so I think there's um, uh, the difference. Of, the different thing about property rights is that uh, there is some kind of. Uh, this kind of goes back to our original discussion about uh, social media. Is that you know to have rule of law, right? Uh, you have to be able to keep the promises that society has made. Um, if if society says this is your property, and now you've built a house on it, and you've you know you've made it really enticing, and now society wants to take it away from you, there's something really wrong about that, right? Society is breaking the promise that it made to you, and and it that's you know. Uh, rule of law is helpful because you can anticipate what is going to happen. So, but I think. You know, we have no such rules when it comes to language. The reason why we're able to be so flexible in language is because the stakes are really low. Innovation is really valuable. And, you know, there's all of these other reasons why we might want to communicate. Um, so there's no 
there's no need to like protect the minority view when it comes to language. Although now that I think about it, um, uh, efforts to protect languages, you know, or dialects that are rarely used, that's kind of a bit of that. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I'm curious about your thoughts on that, Mark, what, whether you think that um, uh, protecting property rights, protecting the weak compared to the strong and actually being inflexible to changes in society, whether that makes it so much different to language that the analogy doesn't really work. I'm muted. I'd like to uh, briefly respond to Kate before we transition to Jazeera, if that's okay with Jazeera. Okay. Um, so I agree with you about what mechanics in the world I would prefer to see. I would prefer to see a system of property where the my ownership of property was not subject to a supermajority of the society wanting to take it away from me. Uh, however, I don't see an option for making that real. And I don't think that crypto and blockchain and any of the technologies we're talking about affect that, that the issue of what I own operationally, what I'm allowed to, what, what physical uh, assets I'm able to continue to use uh, really depends on this emergent sense of legitimacy. And the emergent sense of legitimacy can change. Now, we can try to make it very, very resistant to abusive change. And that's what um, uh, things like, you know, the, the structures that James Madison, came, you know, engineered into the uh, U.S. Constitution, where it's very, very hard to amend things, where it's very hard to change the fundamental rules. It's very hard to hold the constitutional convention. Uh, so as long as, uh, and that the, as we said, that the different bodies have different time constants. So it's very hard for a momentary change to overwhelm the system. But um, uh, but that all, all of that only works to the degree to which the Constitution itself maintains its legitimacy in the eyes of a consensus of an of an adequate consensus of the population, uh, and even by the Constitution's rules, a change in the population of what is regarded as legitimate that that is an adequate supermajority maintained over an adequate amount of time. Uh, uh, Madison realized that if the formal structure can't accommodate change in the face of that kind of long-lasting change in consensus, uh, then that you know the the alternative to that is simply a revolution against the document rather than maintaining the individual rights against the long-standing uh, change in consensus. So I think this correspondence can only be rooted in this shared sense of legitimacy, and we can 
and and the things that create friction against that legitimacy themselves only have power if the rules creating the friction themselves have acquired a sense of legitimacy. I have a response to this, but I don't know if we want to go to Jazir or do you mind if I respond really quickly, Jazir? No, I'll go for it. In absence of Allison, I'll let you take my property right to speak and just <laughs> go for it. Thanks. Um, yeah, so th- this reminds me of um, what Jillian Hadfield, uh, she often quotes Lon Fuller saying that, um, I'm going to paraphrase horribly here, but uh, law is uh, obedience to rules, not obedience to people, Right. Like uh, the rule of law is everyone agrees to be governed by this set of rules, not, you know, uh, um, be governed by the set of people. And I think it sounds like um, what you're talking about in terms of the shared sense of legitimacy, it's uh, um, there's more to it than just um, saying, uh, you know, it's it's this uh, social consensus all the way down, right? Because um, I think it is, yes, that's true. But also if you socially consent to rules, then there is some kind of baseline that you can use uh, to give that kind of legitimacy. And so to be more concrete about what I'm talking about, um, let's say that uh, uh, if you had a tamper-evident log, Right. So the kind of blockchain going back to 1991, Haber and Sternetta, where all you, you have hash pointers, right, that show you that prove that uh, this record existed at this certain point in time and was not created more recently. Even if you just have that, that actually deters a lot of the kinds of fraud that we see, uh, where fraud requires you to create records um, and, and backdate them. Right. So if I'm if I'm trying to sell stolen walnuts or something like that, right, uh, then I would have to create all of the records that, you know, would be in place um, where, you know, it, it like what was harvested, how they were grown, when the fertilizer was put on, like whatever it was, right? All of those records would have to be in place for that to be uh, for that to be valid. So even if it's all, you know, it's turtles all the way down and it's, you know, our, our um, it, it's this uh, social consensus that social consensus can be based on evidence and based on rules that are in fact uh, objective and can give us um, that kind of more proof of correspondence to reality than we might have otherwise. Okay. Um, I I feel like uh, Kate, you and, and, and Mark must have had amazing conversations all the time at Agoric. I uh, would have loved to, to uh, be a fly on the wall for some of that. Um, I, I really was actually just like thinking about what both of you are saying and, and um, a lot of things came to mind. One is generally speaking, it's it's probably the case that um, voluntary cooperation through uh, property rights, let's say, and voluntary cooperation um, as evident through language uh, is a great intuition pump. A lot of stuff is kind of coming out. And um, for, for I, I wrote out a few things maybe um, here that, that might be helpful. Uh, one is that you can probably take um, through what what, we, what the work folks call higher order composability. Uh, you can probably sort of intentionally double spend or allow double spends in a way that's like practical. Um, so if you imagine something like I own this like house or this property or whatever, 
but only like conditional upon like it being needed for this particular purpose. And I signed like a, some kind of contract in which like there's conditionality to where I own it. Like that is, that is pretty powerful. Um, I'm sure you can maybe imagine ext- some extensions to that. And then um, kind of relatedly, I imagine that people's claims as to let's say value that they can deliver, like not necessarily goods, but services they can provide or statements about their skill or whatever um, are, are uh, probably things that could be added to some kind of a balance sheet. So you might say, hey, I'm not contributing $100,000, but I am contributing five engineers who at the current like sort of, I don't know, uh, level of, of um, quality, they can be uh, considered to be valued at this wage based on, I don't know, the previous wages that they've, they've earned in previous spaces and so on. And I think that um, there's some weird sort of imbalance of information that uh, sophisticated funds or uh, of various kinds get through doing due diligence on analyses for what it is, not just on a balance sheet, but but it, in non-balance sheet assets as well that, that a company will have. And it would be a lot easier if there were price oracles or things like that that could um, kind of attest to uh, the collective value of things that are, are, are uh, that, that, a, that an organization has. Um, and I feel like there's an analog to natural language, which I won't go too much into detail on, but the general direction that we're, we're kind of going in, I think to some extent is like taking social clout or social beliefs um, that a sophisticated trader would use or a sophisticated investor would use um, to make investments. And then bringing that more into a space in which other folks can observe that and maybe take other actions instead. So I'm Andreessen or I'm, you know, some really knowledgeable um, analyst of some kind. And I decide that because of my analysis of these things that may need a higher order composability or or some kind of oracle to really define uh, computationally, if I'm making investments in that, in, that, in that way, other people can follow along uh, because of some sort of computational um, backup of the slightly informal or quality of analysis I've done. And then again, like the, the, one of the great things of crypto hopefully will be being this uh, bringing underspecified value or informal kind of value into financial markets more formally. And I think that would sort of raise the amount of like, let's say GDP uh, that is um, considered to be actually valuable um, onto, you know, the, the wealth of, of nations. Um, and, and then kind of another comment is um, all the stuff that was sort of discussed around um like using a uh, rule of law over a uh, super majority. Um, a, it's not entirely the case because of eminent domain, which I brought up in, in our, in our chat, but um, B, I think if you kind of follow along some of the threads that, that uh, you guys are pulling at, you'd end up at a space where an AI, a sufficiently powerful AI is actually better than a constitution, which raises all sorts of interesting questions, but like is probably the case. Because the constitution can't change as quickly as the AI can. And so essentially, like the constitution is something where you use it, it has to be worded in like this super elegant way to it, where like um, courts and so on can like interpret things in, in like the best manner. And then it's really hard to change, but it can be changed and so on. And so you're waiting essentially for different social consensus mechanisms and political mechanisms to break until you want to revise the constitution. If you have some intelligence that is like observing what's happening, then making changes in real time, that is 
probably, I'm going to not sort of, don't hold me to this, but it's probably objectively better. Um, obviously, there are a bunch of constraints with that. I know we have a bunch of AI risk people. Um, and maybe the last thing I would say is that um, social consensus uh, does seem to defer to physical constraints. So if you do have a situation um, where, uh, you know, the people decide, hey, you know, half the town wants to take your house. Uh, and there, there's maybe some sense of of, of uh, eminent domain that could happen, but the law is going to side with you and keep your property rights and so on. Yes, all of those things do happen. Um, but I, I kind of reiterate a point I, I made last week, which is like everything related to economics um, kind of is uh, really a way of redistributing value and energy as is kind of required um, by the nature of like physical constraints or biological constraints or social or psychological um, and so I do feel like often, okay, you, you often bring up the term uh, property rights. And I, I, I wonder um, if you think about them in this way that is um, more sort of hard pressed or foundational or axiomatic than, than they really are. And that whatever I think about like corner cases to some of the things you say, it's usually I'm like, okay, yeah, that's true. But if the person's hungry, they're going to take steal the bread. And that is what it is. Okay, we have maybe Steve with a quick comment, and then I want to get to the this week's Bitcoin bound in the last 10 minutes, which is what is the most important crypto commerce tool that helps humans cooperate. So I just want to, I guess, uh, spice up people's inspiration for answering the challenge by asking you, it can be one that most inspired you from the chapter, or it can be a new one that we told you didn't include in the chapter. The latter one is better for the Gitcoin bounty, but the other ones we would also love to hear. Like, what is the number one thing where you're in the chapter? Like, yeah, nailed it. This is one that uh, th that is very undervalued. But first, Steve, I don't know you lowered your hand now, so I'm not sure if it's relevant anymore. No, I'm still here. I'm still here. All right. Well, um, this kind of relates to that. I'm just I put it in the chat. I didn't see any responses, but uh, uh, Hedera hash graph. What do people think of that as an alternative to blockchain? And do they understand the, you know, that's gossiping about gossiping, uh, protocol, etc.? Uh, I do not know what that is. So could you? Oh, you got to look that up, my friend. You got to look that up. Hedera hash graph. You do not know about, about Lehman Baird. Oh, man. Yeah. Could you do that immediately? Can you get, give a brief explanation here? Uh, no, no, I, I don't want to do him injustice, but um, it's a di totally different consensus mechanism than uh, than proof of work or proof of stake or whatever. Um, okay, well, we'll look it up. <laughs> I think yeah, that might be the answer. Your bounty right chance. there. Boom. <laughs> I love that. I mean, sounds good to me, but I, I really can't evaluate it. All right. Um, yeah, Kate, go for it. Yeah, uh, just really quickly. So I'm not very familiar with the Hedera Hashgraph project, but um, I will say that, uh, you know, a lot of importance is placed on consensus mechanisms. Consensus mechanisms, it depends on how you're defining it, but when people are usually talking about like proof of stake or proof of work, those are all um, ways to decide who gets to add records to the chain in an open access way. If you have a use case that doesn't need that kind of open access, like, you know, you're all you want is to put records on a chain so that your auditor can make sure that you didn't make up the records later in time. You you don't need all of that infrastructure. 
So I'm very supportive of efforts that kind of pare down decentralized blockchains to the actual, like what technology do you actually need for the particular use case and just use that. So I don't know if Hedera Hashgraph is doing that, but if they do that, then all power to them. All right. So we now have seven minutes left. And, and I do want to just draw people's attention to... The Gitcoin bounty. Um, and if you're willing to share, if you're interested in sharing, maybe even if you haven't said anything um, so far, but also if you have already shared a lot uh, during today's uh, conversation, uh, feel free to uh, just jump in here with an inspirational take. Uh, this is where the bounty is. The Gitcoin bounty for this week is what's the most important crypto commerce tool to help humans cooperate? Uh, with the understanding that later in later chapters, we also discuss crypto commerce tools for humans and AIs and other intelligences to cooperate. So here we focus on humans and AIs. And we made a few suggestions uh, in the chapter. But is there anyone, for example, that you really like in the chapter? Which which in the chapter stood most out for you guys? I had a quick take is we were discussing verification or transaction. Um, would that be the most important, at least from a monetary perspective versus a voluntary perspective? It's just the ability to, like, for instance, when we were trading before, you'd be like, you know, I have this A and you have B and I want B and you want A. And so we find, we're going to trade this. But then when we came up with like cash or like cards, came up with these universal mechanisms that we could use anywhere, no matter who you were, what language you spoke or where you came from. Um, I guess it's making something that's universal, universally appealable, and then to verify it. Wonderful. What stood out to other people? Don't want to put anyone in spot, but Michael and Daniel, I mean, like, was the one that you thought was interesting? Charles, Sheila, do you want to or do you want to put a new one into the race? That's also totally fine. That's a very good break for the bounty chain. Quick, you unmuted. It seems to me that most of the focus on keeping these systems secure or safe is to make it too expensive to gather 51% of the validation power and seize control of the network or, you know, other systems are, are still make it too expensive, which is to say to put the power in the hands of the rich. I was uh, interested in this business of uh, quadratic, you call it quadratic voting or quadratic decision-making this whole situation is very simple, to, very similar to what we have in evaluating countries by their gro gross domestic product, okay, which is mostly held in the hands of the rich few. Uh, a quadratic measure or flat out, how are the poorest people in this country doing? Would be a much better way to evaluate countries. And uh, systems that require more people to get behind what's going on rather than more money would be 
recommend it. Yeah, uh, over. Anyone else? And out of it to some into the net. I mean, the crazy thing about writing this chapter is that the moment you finish it, you have to rewrite it again. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really crazy how like how many of these tools from when we started writing it like are now entirely transformed. Like we added the entire section on DSI, decentralized science, in there like very last minute because at the time of writing we had VitaDAO present. Um, that was the only back then, you know, decentralized science really like DAO out there. Now there's like a multitude of them, and it's not only DAOs, it's a bunch of other projects too, but like that is kind of the thing of why we also want this book you know, to, to be an iterated one, right? That's why we're doing a book club like this, that's why we're doing more bounties, because by the time that now the bounties are out, there's probably a bunch of other projects uh, again in the space. And I mean, it's still too early to tell which of them are actually going to survive, but maybe now with the crash, we will know it a little sooner, who knows? Um, but um, but in any in, in, in any regard, I really encourage you guys, you know, to um, to use the bounties and to suggest us and a few more of the projects that you know are still um, under their fang under react. Um, okay, wonderful. Um, <laughs> yes, it's true. The book will never end. It's it's very true to the. <laughs> it will definitely never end. To yeah, I mean, uh, even for, for example, now a quick update. Um, we just. Um, uh, we just sent the physical books now and finally to the printer. And last minute, I snuck in the presentation that we had with Juan Bindi, at least as a reference to the um, Private Utopia. <laughs> and the publisher was very upset by, at that. But also, we cannot not have at least the Private Utopia presentation from Juan at least linked to from the book. And so, you know, it's it's kind of, it's it's an interesting process of writing something, especially with crypto moving so fast by the moment that you know, you're writing, it's already outdated. But like to the extent that the natural language, for example, analogies, you know, they are, they were there from the earliest stages, and I think that you know, still quite relevant. So I think at least in terms of drawing it back to the analogies and historical perspectives on this and making clear why these technologies are important, um, I think it's it's harder for the book to get outdated. Okay, wonderful. So for next week, I would encourage all of you guys to please check out the next chapter. Next week, the chapter is all about um, the evolution of crypto commerce. So we talk a little bit about. How do we get um, to from normal structures to where we are today? How can we evolve peacefully, crucially, uh, into crypto commerce? Um, and then what awaits us there? And how can centralization dangers arise on higher levels uh, in crypto? What we can do uh, to compensate for these dynamics? Um, and we draw a few uh, historical analogies to IBM and mainframes uh, and and other types of interesting uh, internet uh, memorabilia that, uh, that I think are, are really, like for me, it was wonderful to learn about them from Mark and from Christine. So thank you so, so much, everyone. Um, yeah, this was a really wonderful discussion. I always wonder how these uh, two hours fly by. Thank you, Kate and Paul, so much for joining. Like your comments were spot on. And thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate uh, these chats. They're very long. They're always <laughs> They're never boring. So thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to see you again next week. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.